Hey, it's Nick. Back once again. Happy New Year, by the way. Hope you all had a great Christmas or just holidays or whatever. And exciting news. I spent my New Year in the house with the family. And eyeball and views for this podcast, funnily enough. Now, you may be thinking, what a twat. And yeah, I kind of agree with you, but it was slightly special. So we're really close to breaking 2,000 lessons. Actually, I wanted 2018 lessons just because, you know, I thought that'd be kind of cool. But I stopped obsessing when my eldest daughter asked if I wanted her to listen to all the episodes to get us across the line. But alas, I decline because A, she's only 10. You know what I mean? Podcast isn't for her. And B, because I want the numbers to be kind of genuine. To me, it's it's like the people who play championship manager and they save before each game. So if they lose, you can just reload it, play it again until they win. Yeah, I mean, we've all done that in our time. I hold my hands up, but, but not now. Not for this. I want to actually earn the lessons. And we broke 2000 on the 2nd of January. So I didn't really have to wait that long, did I? Also, our Twitter followers are up to 70. And Facebook is at 71, so that's kind of cool. Nice upward trend there on both. And also, top tip from super fan Lucy Hanna is to listen to Player FM, as it doesn't have any ads. And that's kind of cool, because I hate ads in the middle of podcasting you know, with facts with the flow. But anyway, let's tear into this new year with episode 011, The Main Man's Name, Paddy. To learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last the Ulsters are ever in history. So for anyone not from Ulster or maybe just those not of my age, there used to be a main man, kind of milkman, you know, except he would deliver fizzy drinks to your house instead of milk. He kind of, you know, got muscled out of the same by Tesco's usual story. But as a kid, seeing him right, was right up there with like the kind of, you know, the ice cream van. You know, for generating excitement and kind of like hysteria in the neighbourhood. Kids running around all wired up and sugar and E-numbers, you know. Great memories. But I must confess, ours wasn't actually called Paddy. I just crowbarred that name in there so we could use it as a cheap kind of link to the subject of this episode. It's Colonel Paddy Robert Blair Main, A soldier of huge repute, a fantastic sportsman and a real lover of the booze. I read about him as a kid and was like blown away by the stories of his heroism and his daredevilry, right? you know, by his anger and his rage and his drink-fueled exploits. A man with flaws galore, but also with the heart of a hero. He's most famous for fighting for fighting Nazis in World War II, as he was like an OG of the SAS. And he launched numerous incursions behind you know, enemy lines, driving you know, gun-toting jeeps right into the heart of their operations and escaping every bullet and bomb they fired his way. Which kind of just adds the ironic circumstances of his death in a car crash in his hometown of Ards, Newton Ards, in 1955. A few weeks ago, me old mucker Craig Cannonball Copeland reminded me that I'd drunkenly spoken to him and kind of promised him about doing one on Paddy. So here it is. Now, it's not an exhaustive biography by any means. I mean, there's enough of them out there, written by vastly more accomplished people than myself. No, it's, it's more a collection of stories about the man, just trying to give you a flavour of who he was and, and what he did that makes him so unforgettable. But if you're ready, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. Colonel Paddy, Robert Blair Main. It's maybe best just to jump in here and acknowledge that some people maybe, maybe seem as contentious. Nothing new to us as we all like a bit of contention in this podcast, don't we? But it's in part due to him being ex-SAS, that's kind of British Army. And it's fair to say that they aren't so popular in certain parts of Ulster. But, yes, there's a but. And I know it can be difficult. But let's try to step outside of our kind of cultural confines for about half an hour or so and try to see him for what he was. Which, to me, is a functional alcoholic, a superb sportsman, 
and the scourge of the Third Reich in North Africa during World War II. So our story starts in, in 1941 inside a big black hole. It's damp, it's dirty, it's infested with insects and rats. The man inside is probably going cold turkey from booze addiction. He's there because he laid the smack down on an officer of higher rank during a heated exchange of words in a messel. And he's now, he's now hanging around in the dark, awaiting a court-martial that he is almost certain to be in the bad end of. Dishonourable discharge at best. He's just laying there, sprawled across the cold floor, kind of pondering his next move. And then the metal door creaks open. The searing bright light burns at his eyes. His pupils scream in pain. But the disgraced soldier still manages to squint through one eye. His raised hand partially blocking the light. And he sees a silhouette standing in the doorway. Was it his messenger of doom? Maybe his executioner? Nah, quite the opposite. It was only his bloody saviour. A man called David Sterling. Sterling knew of of this soldier's bravery and fighting prowess firsthand. Having seen him in action. He approached the prisoner, surely filled with trepidation. But in no way could he show it. He was there to provide him a way out of his bind. A freedom of sorts, an offer to become a founding member of an elite squadron of men. Men who would fight deep behind enemy lines, unsupported and unappreciated. Risking their lives with no chance of rescue. Blairmane, or Paddy, as he will also be known, said yes, almost instantly. But there was one condition. That he agree that Sterling will always be seen as an officer that could not be hit. Bermain was born in Yutnards in 1915, just a few months after the onset of the war. and That in many ways is kind of prophetic, due to his kind of later passions in life. At school and university, he excelled at sports such as cricket and golf, but truly, he would excel at the more physical endeavours, becoming Irish heavyweight university's champion in 1936 and getting beaten in points in the British Unis final the same year, which makes you feel just a little bit sorry for the officer that he punched out, but not too much. In rugby, a true man's game, of course, he got his first full Ireland cap in 1937. And for those who don't know, the rugby team is a United Ireland team, made up of all 32 counties. After a mere six caps, he would be chosen for the British Lions Tour to South Africa in 1938. I mean, that's a huge honour, as the team consists of all the best players from Scotland, England, Wales and Ireland. This just helps to provide an insight into the athletic prowess of the man, a natural athlete, albeit one who had a darker side, a side heavily fuelled by alcohol. The 24-game tour lasted over three months. Yes, three months. I mean, I went on a rugby tour to Italy for a week and you could not drink every night. And back into Paddy's day, rugby was still very amateur and excessive drinking was expected. So it would be no surprise to hear that old Bellerzo went a little off the rails. Despite playing most of the games, he was probably rarely sober. A fellow player by the name of Harry McKibben glibly commented that Blair would love nothing better than smashing into his teammates' rooms in the dead of night and wasn't happy until... All the chairs and tables and things were just so much bits of kindling around us in the room while we were still in our bed. Ah, oh, that old classic, eh? But when taking a break from demolishing the furniture, he would go down to the Durban docks, dressed as a sailor, and just pick a fight with any hard-looking bastard he could find. One night, he even came back to his room, stating that he'd shot a springbok. Now, a springbok is an animal, but it's also the nickname of anyone who plays for the South African rugby team. His roommate kind of tentatively turned on the light, scared to find a dead Afrikaans prop at Blair's feet, but was actually relieved just to see a huge deceased deer wrapped around his shoulders. Blair then sauntered off into another room, burst in with his usual style, slung the carcass in the bed and accidentally sliced the fellow player's leg with the antlers. 
knowing that he'd, he'd maybe pushed it a bit too far. He scarbered for three days, turning up just before the team were to depart for home, but not before his coup de grace was to leave the animal at the door of the South African team manager with a wee note attached stating, a gift of fresh meat from the British Isles touring team. I'm not sure what you make of those anecdotes, but to me it sort of suggests he's, he's just a little bit lively, isn't he? You know, a bit madcap, the kind of guy, you know, that could be a cracking laugh to hang out with, but, but comes with a warning tag, you know, attached, busy saying that he can turn sour at any moment, and at those times it's best to run for the hills. To be fair to me, he never ran. He was one of the bravest, insanest men you could ever meet. And you'll maybe agree with me after hearing about the shenanigans he got up to during the war. Colonel Patty... Robert Blair, so we'll return to David Sterling's invitation. Paddy had been, he'd been in a few regiments, you know, training, drilling, but the structured life in the army had bored him. It made him more unpleasant than even nastier. He needed freedom to roam, and with the SAS he would certainly get that. Certainly had been given permission by none other than Winston Churchill to set up a unit that would harass the enemy from deep behind their own lines. The idea was to use small mobile teams to kind of destroy our bases and damage their infrastructure. To be a fly in the ointment, to give the Nazis of the Third Reich an itch they would need to scratch. After a few missions, it became clear that they would be much more than just an itch. However, saying that, the first mission ended in abject failure, with 22 men killed during or just after parachuting into action, which was around a third of their number. Not the most suspicious start. Sterling and Maine had a rethink. They needed mobility, but parachuting it was proven to be too costly in terms of manpower. So they saw the LRDG as the perfect option, the long-range desert group. They were a vastly mobile unit, using jeeps to penetrate deep into enemy territory for recon and for intelligence missions. They were also experts at desert navigation. So add some dangerous and fearless badasses into the mix and you have a potent combo. So in early December 1941 began the first real incursion by the SAS to an airfield near Tamet in North Africa. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Blair Main was on the jeeps, bombs about to go boom. A wee bit of Warren G there, you know, takes me back. Anyway, it was dark and also very cold. Cold at night at least. During the day it was very bright and stiflingly hot, such as the travails of desert warfare, as was bursting tyres, bogged down trucks and sand stuffed engines, and the occasional overhead enemy bomber trying to drop like TNT in your chops, you know quickly took the name of Devil's Country. The detachment split, starting went to Sirt, me and the Temet, divide and conquer. If one failed, maybe the other would succeed. Sterling didn't. He stepped on a snoozing Italian guard as the commandos crept onto the airfield, and his screams, the guard that is not Sterling, sent the British scampering off into the desert. Mian would have more success, much more. Upon racing to the airfield, they found it mostly deserted of people, but absolutely stacked with planes. As they cut the engines of their jeeps, they could barely believe the easy pickings before them. When a keen ear picked up the sound of merriment in the air, German and Italian revelry to be exact, they cautiously followed the sound, the sound of a mess hut, whereby Paddy resorted to type and kicked the door to smithereens. As you can kind of imagine, the merrymakers inside froze, and the music redded at the presence of this giant where the door once stood, bearded and looking like he hadn't bathed in weeks. In true wise cracking 80s action hero style, Paddy rasped a good evening before mixing their alcohol with a magazine full of lead. Officers iced, the commandos got back on mission and adorned the cockpits and the fuel and ammunition dumps with explosive charges, Mian even improvising by tearing out the instrument dials of planes with his bare hands when they ran out of bombs. And with that they were gone. 
disappearing into the camouflage of the darkness, save for a huge explosion behind him as the fuel ignited, probably reminded me of an extra exuberant 11th night celebration in Ulster. Can you imagine the adrenaline, you the buzz from pulling off such a coup, the destruction of precious supplies, not to mention the 15 odd planes had blown up as a huge success for the first official mission. But the slaughter of 30 men from the Messel was a little more contentious. Sterling officially called it an, an overcallous execution in cold blood, but he didn't seem to discipline me in any way, so you wonder if that was just a bit of grandstand and a bit of, a bit of arse covering to the higher-ups, as I'm sure he would have been aware of the logistical, and more importantly maybe the psychological effect that the regiment's first raid would have had amongst the Axis forces operating in North Africa, and so would Maine. Especially as their second raid was to go back to that same airbase and pulverise yet more planes within the week. Ballsily banking on the Nazis, banking on them not bloody returning so soon. The raids and the success continued, and Paddy Main was at the forefront of most of it. One such raid was in early July 1942, when he set off for the airfields of Bagush, over a hundred miles behind the front line. The SAS were, were becoming masters at stealthy insertions and were speeding off after planting numerous devices and 22 separate explosions could be seen in the distance. This greatly displeased me and, Damn, we did 40 aircraft, he growled. Some of the bloody primers must have been damp. A quick look between him and Sterling acknowledged their dual dissatisfaction. In unison, the pair gunned the engines back towards the target area, opening up with the rear-mounted twin Vickers machine guns. The Nazi defences melted away, flabbergasted as they were with such a sudden second attack, handing the raiders an almost free reign to blast another score of planes before vanishing once more into the dead of night. A few days later, they hit up the aptly named Fuku region and added another 34 warplanes to their growing list of destruction. Upon his return to base camp, Mame was asked how things had gone. His reply was quite chilling. A bit trickier tonight. They had posted a sentry on nearly every bloody plane. I had to knife the sentries before I could place the bombs. When a further question inquired as to how many of these guards Mane had actually killed, the reply was quite casual. Seventeen. Seventeen? Without alerting a rest? Once you get over the number he killed, which is quite substantial for individual hand-to-hand -hand combat, I'm sure you'll agree, the fact that he had the skill to kill them all and still place the bombs and get away cleanly, it offers up some sort of ideas as to who he was and how skilled a war he actually could be. He didn't announce the information either, but nor did he hide it. He doesn't seem like he was proud of what he did, nor does he seem perturbed by it. It's like it was strictly business to him, a transaction he just had to process. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's just a little bit scary, isn't it? A detached killer who will do whatever it takes to complete his mission. You just kind of hope all those guys are on your side in war, don't you? Colonel Patty, Robert Blair, Maine. As the summer was reaching its zenith, the SAS would see another huge victory. Again in the Fuku region, where Recon had spotted an airstrip packed with Junker Ju-52 transport planes, essential to the Nazi war effort in the region. They moved men, medicine, munitions and munch all over North Africa in rapid time, and Erwin Rommel, the Nazi overlord of the region, was heavily reliant on them to reinforce his eastern front. Rommel, known as the Desert Fox due to his own warring ability, was a pragmatic man, and is quoted as saying, don't fight a battle if you don't gain anything by winning. Which sort of flies in the face of Maine's attitude, as he just loved to fight no matter the situation. 
As it turned out, though, Mian would probably have been the man to cause Rommel most restless nights. Or possibly he might share that honour with Sterling, as both combined to make his nightmare scenario of junk junkers come true. The duo hatched a plan the attack under a full moon. A fool's errand, you would think, wouldn't you? Everyone knows Battlefield 101 says you don't attack under the bright lights of a big-ass moon, do you? But as before, they flipped it and attacked when they were least expected to do so. Their version of, of a Hannibal from the Alps surprise manoeuvre. Just as they were moving into position, the base was suddenly bathed in light, and the collective combat trousers may just have found some added weight, if you know what I mean. They were rumbled, surely. But no, it was merely lit up to guide a returning bomber playing home to land. Taking full advantage, the cheap attack force sprang into action. Picture this for me, right? A woman's synchronised swimming team, matching outfits, swim caps, and all those kind of you know, perfect, totally aligned ladies, all working together as if in one collective. A beautiful artistry to each and every movement. Well, add four wheels, two massive guns, and a shitload of daredevilry and adrenaline to that picture, and you have the snake and cohesive lines of the SAS bursting into the base and wiping out everything and anything they could. So close to each other that one solitary mistake could lead to dire consequences for them all. Whilst weaving their destruction, they realised that they had hit the bloody jackpot. Not only were the Junkers there, but also Messerschmitt fighters, Hinkle bombers and Stuka dive bombers. All in all, they robbed the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, of about 40 of their prized aircraft, including one that Main destroyed by hand. His motto seems to have been less, who dares wins, and more, you never leave a plane behind. So with his vickers out of ammo, he bounced out of his jeep, sprinted at the plane and bowled a chunk of plastic explosive at its wing, and hightailed it out of dodge with the flames of a burning aircraft licking at his back. It's hard to fully, fully try to explain how truly insane, crazy, brilliant, audacious these two men were, Sterling and Maine, who were a partnership that just worked. The sort of different generations they could be like, like Batman and Robin, Starsky and Hutch, or, or Riggs and Murtaugh, or maybe even Mordecai and Rigby to give the millennials a reference, you know, gotta keep them happy. So it's good to add a little bit more about Sterling here, a bit of balance, you know, the qu- he was a quintessential English gent, a David Niven type character, and let's see if the millennials get that one without Google. I'd suggest just asking your parents to be fair. It's possibly a common misconception that, that he was the brains and Mame was the brawn as both both were highly involved in planning and execution of the strategy. Yeah, yeah, he was a bit of a wild man too, certainly. Lacking means rage and temper, but, but surely an equal in daring and skullduggery. General Bernard Montgomery is quoted as saying, The boy starting, mad, quite, quite mad. This included his driving, and during a particular mission, it was noted that he had one hand on the wheel, puffing away at his pipe and all the time doing a cool 60, for all the world as if he was out for a run down the Great North Road. And another officer described his driving as the most dangerous thing in World War II. And if you know anything about World War II, it was pretty fucking dangerous. Now when I was a nipper, I was obsessed with books about the military. Because like, you know, like many kids, I dreamed of being a soldier, a warrior, you know, the thrill of travelling, travelling to foreign lands and killing bad guys. But in the end, was kind of too scruffy and really didn't like being told what to do so that's kind of put an end to that dream but anyway a particular story that has always stood out for me it stood the test of time was one of sterling's adventures as i recall he was leading a recon mission deep deep in enemy territory and he was there to watch troop movements and general base goings on from you know from a room with a view in a sense safe enough one day though sterling got a bit bored and he decided to go for a swim 
And when he was finishing up after doing a couple of lengths, and he was tiling himself down, he gets scooped by a German patrol. They were all, Actong, Actong! Which sounds a bit Japanese, like I really have to work on my accents, don't I? But anyway, they were asking him what the hell he was up to. Using a mixture of charm and bravado, he kind of convinced them that he was an Italian officer, and they let him go. For many, a kind of close shave would have seen them pack their bags and skid daddle out of town, but not Sterling. He did something quite unexpected, a trait that would become his M.O. He decided the next day he would talk his way into the camp, and he walked about saluting and conversing with guards and officers and getting an unprecedented insight of the camp. He may even have had lunch with a few of them in the mess hall, at least that's how I remember it, sitting there in the bottom bunk reading about a dead guy with a death wish, just thinking how ballsy this cat was. But, search as I may, I actually couldn't find a story again. So, my memory may have exaggerated some of the details, if not made them up entirely. However, I did stumble upon a similar story. One of how he strolled around the occupied town of Benghazi, joined by Randolph Churchill, son of Winston. The two seemed to have great fun as the Nazis saluted them as they walked by, all the time looking for weaknesses and opportunities to exploit. And the key element of both stories is the sheer balls in this guy. He did what others would balk at, and he was maybe a little more silk than me and steel, but both approaches have their place, don't they? His bluff and bluster would, would later backfire on him as he was captured towards the end of the desert campaign, but it was then that he finally did something you would expect, and that was to escape. Four times. Four times he escaped before finally being sent to Colditz. Colditz, if you don't know, is an extremely high security prison on a clifftop. Spectacular fuse of Saxony. Which is nice, especially as he would spend the rest of the war there, though obviously trying to jailbreak at every given opportunity. Colonel Patty, Robert Blair, Maine. Anyway, back to your main focus. <laughs> in mid-September, they launched a raid on Benghazi. And despite intelligence telling them that the Nazis knew they were coming, the top brass demanded they proceed. When approaching an unmanned checkpoint, about 600 odd miles behind enemy lines, they were ambushed on both sides and had to get the hell out of there, chased by the strafing Luftwaffe. It constantly buzzed across the jeeps with bullets, forcing the drivers to wildly snake across the road. Many men and motors met their end that night. But when a fellow soldier was shot and fell from Main's jeep, he peeled off from the column and parked up under cover some way off. He then headed back on foot, scooping his fallen compatriot and carrying him like a sack of coal back to the jeep, unaware about whether he was still alive or possibly dead. That blows me away. Obviously once I get the parallel of the forest gump out of my mind, but his clear head and his bravery, his loyalty to his men, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's true heroism in the face of absolutely horrific and brutal danger. You would think Maine had no fear, and as it turns out, he may have found the cure. Johnny Wiseman, a fellow SAS commando, tells a story that Paddy once knocked him to the ground, pinned him down with considerable bulk, and yelled, Get me my throat cut! He then proceeded to shave half of Wiseman's beard with a dry blade. Can you imagine the rash that I give you? No bloody face bam in those days. Years later, Wiseman recounted the tale and it'll come as no shock that Maine was full of rum. Wiseman said, I've never been so frightened in my life. I was sure he was about to cut my throat. After that, nothing in the war frightened me, ever. I was cured. So fair play Maine there, you know. Despite losing around 50 men and 50 vehicles in the fateful Benghazi disaster, the SAS were still averaging 15 raids a week. 
where almost Africa Corps would have known who Maine and Sterling were and what they were capable of. Old Adolf for the ship tash he knew too. On October the 8th, 1942, he created the Commando Befell, or Commando Order, which declared that these British saboteurs and their accomplices are to be hunted down and exterminated without mercy. I'm sure that brought a big smile to Paddy's chops when he heard the news, you know. I mean, who doesn't like pissing off Mindfuhrer? But maybe not so much as when the fully supplied Allied forces stormed the beleaguered El Alamein, a victory that decisively turned the war in North Africa. And it was heavily due to the incredible raiding skills of the SAS and how they had wreaked havoc on the resources of Rommel's rats. Sterling, however, was captured during the final days in Africa, as we mentioned, and he probably used his charm in order not to be killed as a commando. And this left Maine in charge. But his first battle wasn't with the Nazis. It was to prevent the disbandment of the force him and Sterling had worked so tirelessly to form. Weeks later, he found out that his father had died, and angered by not being allowed to fly home to attend the service, he went on a three-day bender. One compatriot said, I saw Paddy through the provost marshal and two military policemen down the steps of Shepherd's Hotel. Now, I'm not entirely sure who or what the provost marshal is, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't want to be thrown down a flight of stairs by Paddy Main. But things had turned full circle and Paddy was back in the brig, awaiting court-martial. However, this time, his importance was without question and the charges were dismissed. After this, Paddy set to training his newly named SRS, the Special Raiding Squadron. However, as a unit, they had climaxed in the desert and never again did they reach such heights of heroics. But it was shock few that one man did. On April 9th, 1945, whilst guiding a regiment of Canadian troops through the Bavarian countryside, the column were set upon, heavily, by a German unit firing from a large house. Paddy grabbed the biggest gun he could manage and barged into the house, presumably kicking the door to bits in the way, before going room to room until no more enemy soldiers could draw breath. Pretty cool, eh? But he wasn't finished. The convoy was still getting bombarded from a wood, and Paddy didn't like that either. So he grabbed the gunner by the scruff, trailed him into a jeep and blazed right into the firing line. With no thought for his personal safety, and as if he was cruising for chicks on a sunny day, he slowly manoeuvred across the wood whilst the gunner emptied shell after shell into it. Wood cleared and still, under constant fire, he then raced back to the original attack spot and began hauling both British and Canadian casualties into the jeep and taking them to safety. The column, who had seemingly decided to let Maine do everything, then mobilised as the Germans panicked and withdrew. Maine's bravery and heroism had once again saved the day, but humble as ever, he never mentioned it. His men did though, and despite earning a third Distinguished Service Order medal, many felt he should have had a VC, the Victoria Cross, the absolute pinnacle of military awards in Britain. That he didn't is still a source of irritation and frustration to so many, and it was reported that George VI inquired why the VC had so strangely eluded him. Major General Sir Robert Laycock, post-war chief of combined operations, wrote, I feel I must drop you a line to tell you how very deeply I appreciate the great honour of being able to address, as my friend, an officer who has succeeded in accomplishing the practically unprecedented task of collecting no less than four DSOs. I am informed that there is another such superman in the Royal Air Force. He would return to Ulster after the war, a hero to many that knew him, but like so many veterans, he found it hard to sell. He was most surely more suited to the perils of war than to the rigours of civilian life. But he was a trained lawyer, so let's not feel too sorry for him, you know. Although, he was hampered severely by a back injury, sustained during a parachute jump with the regiment, 
a fact that he had hidden from his men, and one that only inflates his incredible deeds of bravery. One skill that did flourish post-war was his drinking. There was talk of him picking ex-army men and dragging them with him to boozing spots throughout the island, drinking like he didn't need to see tomorrow. The men, too scared to deny Blair's wishes, were just happy to make it home after a week-long binge, and him driving like Erton Senna through crazy country lanes blitzed out of his tree. It also seems that his ferocious reputation as a warrior preceded him, and guys would travel from across the province to fight this man of legend, invariably returning home with way more than just their ego bruised. Or some believe that was what fueled his rages, his craziness. But without any evidence, save for him not being married. Because of that, I'm just going to channel my inner Chris Rock and ask, whatever happened to crazy? I mean, can't the guy just be nuts anymore? Who knows, or who really cares? I'll leave that there, as it makes no difference. Does it? Certainly not to me. So he likes to drink, likes to fight, likes to have to crack with his mates. Most of us do. But after one night, when he may or may not have been drinking, on his way home, his car hit a parked van in the middle street in Yonards around two in the morning. When the emergency services were alerted a few hours later, he was pronounced dead at the scene. There were a few stories that some people saw the car, but that they were too scared to approach it for fear of what Paddy would do to them as he emerged, unscathed as he always did. But again, that's hard to prove, and even harder to fathom. Like I said earlier, it's so ironic that he survived all the Third Reich threw at him, dodged bullets, rescued armoured convoys, drove through thousands and thousands of miles of war-torn desert, and he ends up meeting his fate in a car crash in Newtonards. Whether he was drinking or not, he joins a long list of Northern Irish flawed heroes. It seems to be our thing. The likes of George Best and Alex Higgins, world-class sportsmen with a love for the drink and good times, and it eventually caught up with them too. In many ways, it reminds me of Colonel Troutman's Barb the Teasel and Rambo First Blood. Vagrancy, wasn't it? That's gonna look real good in this gravestone in Arlington. Here lies John Rambo, winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, survivor of countless incursions behind enemy lines, killed for vagrancy in Jerkwater, USA. Now, I'm not referring to Ards as Jerkwater. No way, not at all. I mean, Ards is a lovely place, but the sentiment is there. That it's a waste, a man gone too soon, one that still had so much to offer. But there's the other side as well, that of the hero that did die, died early enough to cement their legacy, their infamy. But what of Paddy's legacy? There's a commemorative statue to him outside the town hall in Jerkwater, I mean, sorry, Ards. It's life-size, he's clasping a book, and it, it emphasises another side to him, a lesser-known side, that of the reader, a man of keen wit and intellect. There are also two streets named after him, Blair Main Road in North, and also a Blair Main bursary awarded to help local children. There was even talk of the new £30 million leisure centre being named after him. And here is where it's a little controversy, and also something that puts a spotlight on underlying issues in the province, as we stray a little into dodgy ground here. The Unionist councillors are all for the name. He was a hero of World War II, a sporting great, reaching the absolute heights of the rugby world. Yet the more nationalist SDLP party disagree, with one councillor even stating, I'm not sure we should be going down the road of naming the facility after someone who may be perceived to be from one side of the community. I have two quick points to raise about their objection. Firstly, the aforementioned SDLP did not vote to rename the Raymond McCresh Play Park in Newry, something that has come into really sharp focus in Ulster over the last few days due to a certain Sinn Féin councillor, but that is very much a topic for a very different podcast. As for the SDLP's decision, though, it's purely political. It's based on the fact that the vast majority of their demographic wanted to keep the name as McCresh. I mean, he's highly regarded by many in that area for his role in the hunger strikes of the early 80s. For the SDLP to come out against the name would alienate the party even further. 
So they have to neglect their supposed principles of equality, which just makes it even more hypocritical regarding their objections and ours. I mean, politicians being hypocritical, who knew, eh? Secondly, I don't think the objectors actually understand Maine at all. As we said earlier, the British Army is not so popular in certain areas of Ulster, and Maine was British Army, you cannot deny that. However, their very objections are made possible by the role he played in sustaining democracy throughout Europe and not letting fascism take hold. A little bit dramatic there, but even way and above that is the fact that he didn't give a shit about what religion people were, as it's well known that he loved drinking with and beating up folks from all sides of any divide. So I'd say that people need to wind their necks in, get some consistency and stop with a bell entry. Which to be fair, is a lesson the majority of politicians could do with Hayden, I'm sure you'll agree. But getting back to Blair. He died aged only 40, which is just a bit older than me. And to be fair, he squeezed a hell of a lot more action and adventure into his life than I'd say me and all my mates combined. Although I did recently visit his grave at Mavilla Cemetery and that was quite the adventure trying to find it. As it was New Year and there was no one about and Google didn't know. So I had to look for it all by myself. I went all kind of logical and started at the start, worked my way around, but the graveyard itself was massive, way bigger than I expected. But then, after about half an hour, just when I was starting to lose a little bit of motivation, I saw a red reef, way off in the distance, in what looked like the kind of remnants of an old church. I parked up, ran over, trying not to stand at anyone's grave, but like kind of whispered apologies because I failed miserably. I eventually reached the reef and, and there it was, like a family headstone, naming quite a few generations, which which is kind of cool, buried all together, and, and they're mementos of, of, of people's visits, showing just how much he still means to some. And I thought that was class, you know, knowing that he's not forgotten. If you intend to visit, it's in the main entrance and up to the left. Don't go round to the right. Miles away. When I was there, I'd take a few snaps and then just scarf it. I kind of just ditched my car. But if you want to see the photos, including some of the statue and the road size, huh? Wow. How can you resist that, eh? Well, they'll be in the Facebook page. Uh, just search for Irreverent History. And there'll be some on Twitter too, at Irrev History. Because I'm really digging Twitter at the moment, by the way. It's, it's almost like it's weird addiction I never knew I had. So come join us and let's cause a bit of trouble, you know? But let's get back to Colonel Paddy Robert Blair Main for one final time. He was one of the British Army's most decorated soldiers ever. As a founding member of the SAS, he won four distinguished service orders, and both the Légion d'Honneur, which is France's highest military honour, and the Croix de Guerre, making him the first foreigner to receive both. As you know, he was a bit mad. He loved to drink, almost as much as he loved to fight. But did you know that he wrote a war diary? as alluded to by the statue. There's lots of interesting insights into his personality, and I'll hit you with one now, one that I found most interesting. It's when he broke his century of aircraft demolitions. They threw him a bit of a shindig in the officer's mess, and he describes it as a dangerous place to go as you never know what is in your glass. That to me says it all about the man. There he was, fighting Nazis in the desert, ridden the Luftwaffe of spare aircraft, and to him the officer's mess is the danger zone. Incredible, like you can almost imagine him setting explosives on a plane in the middle of a war zone, bullets buzzing over his head, and all the while he's worrying about some deities arranged later that week. I was surprised, however, not to finally mention the sandcastles in this diary. I mean, years spent waiting about in the desert, not one mention of a bucket and spade. You know what I'd be doing, like? But more surprising again, and I wonder if you agree, is that it's so ridiculous that he does not yet have a film made about him. If you're listening to this and you feel inspired to make a movie about the man, then please hook me up and let me be in it. Now, I don't have to star as Blair Main, I will if you want me to, but I'm happy just as any kind of part, though I do have a really scraggly kind of unkempt beard, so I could definitely be an SAS commando, you know, just saying. Anyway, I'll leave you with a song I found during the research. It's by a guy called Thomas Cowie. 
at least that's his YouTube handle. He has lots of tunes that he's composed himself, and he is a singer with the kind of Johnny Cash-like rasp that you've been hearing in spurts. In mad coincidence, he actually lives in my hometown, and he was cool enough to let me use his tune. So thanks, Thomas. I'll link to his stuff on the website at reverendhistory.com, and here's his tune in full. So as I might say in the army, see you in the mess hall. Enjoy. Later. They decorated him again and again and again and again and again. The medals bore his name, his name, his name. The medals bore his name, Blurmain, 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 Blurmain. In five years of war, the worst the world had saw. And cruel be that no one can explain. This man rose so high, and he ran out of sky. Lieutenant Colonel Paddy Robert Blurmane, Colonel Paddy. Robert Blurmane. He fought Rommel in the desert, Mussolini in Italy, and in Europe he proved that he was bold. France decorated him. And the medals they were pinned by their president, General Charles de Gaulle. General Charles de Gaulle. Home to Newton and peace for him was hard for so long he knew the bullet and the ball in 1955 in his car he crashed and died my pleasant won't forget her heroic son, my pleasant won't forget her heroic son, Colonel Patty Robert Blur May. They decorated him. Again and again and again.